And welcome into another episode of Turning the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I am Kieran Steckley. With me, the Athletics' Cody Stavenhagen, or as he is known in the streets, Scribe Master Flex. Cody, how you doing, man? <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that one. Uh, I like that. Doing good. It's Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm doing good. It's Father's Day weekend. I'm recording from... Uh, good old Amarillo, Texas today. So um, not all the way off, like halfway off, still keeping tabs on the Tigers, but able to uh, go back home. Got a round of golf coming up this afternoon. So yeah, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. It was a, uh, let me, let me say it this way. You've earned somewhat of a mini vacation ish type deal, you know, because it was kind of a long week in Tigers land. Uh, not necessarily because of the games, but having to keep track of everything. Uh, the Tigers, I'm, I got a, uh, 10 inch iPad up that I, you know, look for when I'm, when we're recording and I just have the transaction page up just from the 15th. It's the entire screen, the list of transactions. <laughs> it's the entire screen. I don't, I don't. It's a lot to keep track of, and I imagine Al and and AJ and and the entire staff were uh, were playing a lot of chess, trying to figure out this piece, that piece, this guy, that guy. Can we do this? Do we have enough here? I mean, this was probably harder than when they had to arrange the roster for opening day, because at least then you had basically everybody available. This was sort of out of a sign of desperation, so. Uh, how would you sum up, obviously we're not going to go through every move, but how would you kind of sum up the transactions, the moves the Tigers made this week? Yeah, I mean, this is another one that makes my head hurt just looking back on it. It's like, am I am I forgetting any transactions because there were so many? Um, you know, the big one is, is, is Matt Manning. You know, he's up here. He made a start in Anaheim. He made his debut. Um Kind of a two factors went into it. The Tigers really needed pitching. He was on the 40 man roster, um, despite having like an 8.03 ERA in AAA. He was going to get the call. It was kind of a numbers game, and he showed just a lot, just enough in his last start in AAA that the Tigers were confident his stuff was improving. They thought they could bring him up here. You know, I think some of these other moves, um, obviously not as big of a deal. You got Willie Peralta, Miguel DePozo. It's interesting that the Tigers finally uh, designated Bo Burrows for assignment. That is not a big surprise to anyone who has followed. Uh, but Bo Burrows was still a first-round pick in, in 2015, a guy who had a lot of promise, who in 2019 looked to be uh, on the verge of, of cracking the big leagues. And then, you know, he battled some minor injuries, and his stuff was just never there. It seemed like the organization's been ready to move on for him um, from him for a while. I kind of feel for Bo Burrows, though. I don't know if this guy uh, will be claimed. I don't know if he has a major league future. There's a real chance that his last major league appearance involved vomiting on the mound. Uh, you know, he, he ran into some, I don't know, I think he kind of overheated there last weekend uh, against the, the White Sox. Kind of sad. Uh, feel feel bad for the guy. But that's also the reality. And speaking of the reality, Wilson Ramos, the veteran catcher the Tigers signed this offseason, he gone. Uh, I think we we talked about it on this podcast. It was hard to see him getting back to the bigs with Eric Haas and Jake Rogers playing well. Um, I think the Tigers' injuries, their need for pitching, kind of forced this decision to come a little sooner than it might have otherwise, but he was still injured. He's rehabbing in Lakeland. I will be very interested to see uh, if Wilson Ramos clears waivers or or what exactly his future might hold here. But yeah, seems like the Tigers are set on moving forward with Jake Rogers and Eric Haas. Um, no more Wilson Ramos. Yeah, and uh, again, sort of just another wrinkle to it would be like getting Jamer Candelario back from the bereavement list, and that's not something that you know you necessarily like anticipate is like part of the equation. But you kind of have to you throw that into it, and that made it. Really complicated. Obviously, hope uh, whatever was going on with him, things are as good as they could be. Obviously, that term is not a happy term. So let's let's um, let's talk about Matt Manning. Uh, in case you missed it, he went 
five innings and allowed two runs, had three strikeouts and two walks. Very fastball dependent. Let, let me let me just say this. I watched him and I watched that game and I thought, you know, if for some reason Wright Thompson was watching this game and wanted to write a book about the Detroit Tigers, there would be four chapters about this game alone because this was the epitome of the 2021 Detroit Tigers. So you have a uh, you have a young prospect that's you know part of banking on the future playing playing well at times, lacking at times, uh, has some things go against him that are out of his control, uh, is overmatched when you look at the opponent that he's you know playing against, quote-unquote, uh, in Shohei Otani. Uh, it gets a little dicey. You could see that it's not a complete product yet. And then the team itself kind of bottoms out. Then they come back, and then they fall short because they're just not quite there. I thought this game was exactly what this season was, uh, Matt Manning specifically, and then how the team performed in general. What what did you see uh, watching Manning make his debut? Yeah, to be honest, I felt a little bit validated, like not in a good way. I've, I've been, critical is not the right word, but kind of concerned about Matt Manning um, for a while. I mean, dating back to last year, if not before, I've said it on this podcast before, I just don't think his pitch mix is very diverse, especially when his curveball is not working. It looks like his attempt to, you know, uh, work in like a slider this offseason didn't really go well. He had s- several pitches that registered as sliders on the like the um, Hawkeye radar, but I think they were just kind of somewhat harder curveballs that maybe weren't good curveballs. I don't know if he's trying to throw a slider. Um, it was tough to distinguish the difference, but anyway, he ended up throwing, you know, almost 70% fastballs. Um, the fastball, you know, ended up, ended up being good. It got better as the game went on to where it looked very good, you know, as he finishes the fifth inning. Um, we've actually seen more velocity from Matt Manning at times in spring training, but he was still sitting, you know, mid nineties, plenty of power. Once he started commanding that fastball later in the game. That was encouraging, but you just didn't see the secondary stuff. His curveballs were ugly. He couldn't command them. Uh, the changeup, you know, like I've said for a while, like it kind of is what it is. It's like an okay pitch for him, but in the big leagues, I don't know. Um, that's really going to suffice. So when I look at the line, you know, five innings, two earned runs, I'm almost like, wow, I don't know how he did that because I did not think he looked very good. Now, on the other side, credit to Matt Manning, you know, for getting through that for, you know, I, I tweeted it out. You look at the, the lines from uh, the MLB debuts for Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal. We've seen all these guys go through their growing pains. Matt Manning kind of had the best MLB debut of the three. Um, if you just look at the line, he went through a rough second inning. He started getting hit as the Angels sat on his fastball and he battled through it and he stayed composed. So in a way, like, that's part of the growing process, and I think that is uh, that is a good sign for Matt Manning, although I think uh, his stuff's going to have to improve. I'll be interested to see what just one week uh, in the bullpen with Chris Fetter might be able to do. He's going to start Wednesday against the Cardinals. Yeah, and you know I'm looking at this a little bit more positively than I think a lot of people are. Uh, one of the signs of being a big leaguer, or one of the traits, I should say, of being a successful big leaguer is when your best stuff isn't there, you find a way. Uh, the two runs were, you know, largely circumstantial. Like, it wasn't like, you know, there's you know, a two-run bomb or anything like that, and or like gave up a triple in the gap. You know, it was, it was just kind of baseball, if that makes sense. And it's not like he had a tremendous amount of help behind him, uh, some lack of fundamentals defensively were shown uh, in that game for sure. Most, most notably, most, uh, <laughs> most comically, it was probably Akil Badu throwing home. Uh, and and just side note, that game had everything with one of the longest. Uh, this has nothing to do with Manning. We can get back to Manning, but one of the longest rundowns I think I've seen in a uh, in a profession in a major league baseball game. Maybe maybe in any game, honestly, outside of like a T ball with eight errors, you know. But 
But yeah, like I said, I'm looking at this a little bit positively. He didn't have everything. If you look at just the circumstances of which led up to and what was that start, I mean, he's technically on national TV, I guess you could call it, even though it's the internet, but it's just regular, you know, anyone could watch it, you know, on YouTube, right? And, uh,. He's not really ready in terms of getting in a groove in the minors. You talked like it was so funny to see that graphic because it's like Tigers number three prospect or what you know whatever number number twenty three prospect in all of baseball, triple A stats this year eight point whatever ERA. <laughs> you know, I was like, man, the national audience is not going to think very good of uh, they probably worse of the Tigers when their number top five prospect is a. Uh, has got an 8 ERA in AAA, but he, he wasn't really on a good stretch. I mean, he did do better toward the end, but he wasn't on a good stretch. He was forced call up. It wasn't like a, uh, it was, I, I, it definitely was earlier than I think Al anticipated when he said, oh, for sure, Manning's going to be up here this year. And then you're on the road, you're in your home state, there was kind of an opening day buzz to the ballpark from what I could tell because it was the first game with full capacity um, over there in California. And you got to go up um, against them on the mound and at the plate, one of the most recognizable guys in the game, and Shohei Otani. So, like, given everything, and he didn't have his best stuff, and, you know, you could tell there were nerves, and, you know, he wasn't confident in some of his other pitches, but he was able to work it. He was able to work it, and now, had he stayed in longer, uh, he probably, it would have fallen uh, apart for him, I think, but AJ um, said, you know, wanted to end him on a positive note, I think that was the right thing to do, and, you know, he he sure as hell looked a lot better than that bullpen, so. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Poor Kyle Funkhauser finally uh, finally came back to earth that night. Um but no, I did. I think that was a that was a really smart move by AJ Hinch. I, you know, Manning was at seventy seven pitches. I was at the point where I kind of wanted to go back out for the sixth because he had been getting progressively better. Um, you know, and then he got pulled. And as AJ explained later, like you wanted him to end that game on a positive note. I think that that was absolutely the right call. Um, yeah, the Tigers ended up losing once it. <laughs> Once it uh, got handed over to the bullpen, but yeah, I think I think that was totally the right call. He now has a good mindset going into another start um, against the Cardinals. What did you in the Zoom uh, post game interviews? What could you draw from uh, his words, his body language, and and sort of as he sort of tried to put everything into perspective? Because it is kind of an awkward thing. It, it, it's a it's a one time thing, so like it it's fleeting. But it's a little bit of an awkward thing where you're answering questions about a loss, but it's really but you're upbeat and positive because you just finally achieved a dream. That's kind of a that's kind of a weird thing. I remember Casey Mize kept his Casey Mize demeanor the entire time, but that's that's not everybody. I don't know how Matt Manning is. So, uh, what could you draw from you know the way he was talking, the way he was looking uh, post game as he sort of tried to process everything? Yeah, that's a good point. Many of the questions he was answering weren't so much about the game or or um, specific pitches. It was what were your emotions? Who did you talk to the night before the game? How much sleep did you get? Stuff like that. Um, Matt Manning's personality is kind of interesting to me. If you you know, I've just observed him. You know, I, I remember going to Erie once and uh, seeing him do stretches and like some pregame running drills and the guy was just straight up goofing around, you know, and it was like, okay, this is very much a, like a 21 year old pitcher who's straight out of high school. He likes to joke around kind of on the field. I've seen it multiple times when he steps on the mound, you know, you hear it's kind of cliche, but he's, he does have the bulldog mentality. Um, he's not like the most gregarious interview, but he seemed in a really good mood after his debut. I think he was just happy. Um, you know, to be soaking it all in. Uh, I don't think that it didn't seem like the emotions overwhelmed them. Remember, this is the son of a, a former NBA player. Like, I think he knows how to handle the moment and has some of that just in his bloodlines. Um, so there was that, you know, but he talked about he didn't get much sleep the night before. He was FaceTiming with Alex Fiedo, just kind of trying to calm his nerves to the point he was up so late, he apparently fell asleep while on FaceTime with Alex Fiedo, so that's that's kind of funny. 
So, you know, he was clearly nervous. He said the hardest part of the day was, you know, just the waiting, right? The waiting is the hardest part. Um, you wait in the hotel for the bus. You ride from, you know, on the bus to the stadium. You sit there in the stadium and you piddle around and then you finally go warm up and throw your bullpen. And so that that's when you get nervous. That's when the thoughts set in. I think once he was able to step on the mound, um, you know, things came pretty naturally and it was, it was just pitching obviously on a much bigger stage, but yeah, I mean, as we've talked about, it didn't seem like he was uh, completely nervous or totally overwhelmed by any means. You know, sort of like the, what I said about him going out for another inning, it was probably not sustainable what he was doing. It's not going to be sustainable the next time he goes out there to throw, what was it, 85% fastballs or, you know, whatever. Only 70. 70. It might as well well have been 85%, let me tell you. Uh, That's not sustainable, but it is also going to – it's asking a lot for a a rookie, a young kid, to have to figure out his second pitch to make it consistent in the major leagues – as only your second, third, fourth, you know, whatever start. I mean, uh, that's that's the thing about that's the thing about professional sports and specifically pitching. There's no real substitute for actually pitching in a game, you know, and and so that's worrisome to me. Uh, you have to sort of put your faith in in Chris Fretter that he's gonna be able to get that out of him, but. I don't know how confident are you that he's going to be able to essentially on the fly figure out this second pitch because it, it, it it's hard for me to think that it's going to happen Wednesday at least. Yeah, this is something I remember hearing from scouts back in 2019 when he was tearing up the Eastern League. It was that Matt Manning might just have the highest ceiling of the demise Scooble Manning trio. And he's probably also the most likely to have a rough start to his major league career. Back then, it was he really needs a third pitch. Back then, you know, his curveball was dynamite. It was considered one of the best pitches in the Tigers system. And that curveball has just been inconsistent or, in some cases, notably absent, uh, you know, since the end of 2019. I think when it was on in 19, I didn't watch every start he had at Erie, but I think it would re- it would really pop out of his hands. He would kind of telegraph that curveball. My guess is an effort to fix that, to make it tunnel a little better. He changed his release point, and the pitch hasn't really had the same action or control since then. Uh, so now he's in the big leagues, and we're talking about not a third pitch. We're talking about what's his second pitch. So, yeah, I think the idea that it's going to take this guy a while to find his footing is legit. I mean, it's a com- he was still finding his footing in AAA, obviously. To be honest, he just there is no footing. So. <laughs> he has no footing right now. He had a nice, yeah. he had a nice game, but he has yeah. no footing. That's probably the better way to correct the phrase. <laughs> he doesn't have it. So the good news, yeah, the good news is the guy has talent. Look, his stuff can play in the bigs. His fastball can play in the bigs. If he's able to dial in the curveball, he's going to be, uh, you know, it, it's a big league curveball. Probably needs to keep working on the changeup. I'd still like to see a slider or a cutter in that mix. Although maybe that's a, a project for the off season, so yeah, that's interesting. In a way, it's kind of unfair to Matt Manning. He's up here probably before he's really ready, um, and he's going to have to figure it out on the fly. You know, there were the Tigers fans a couple weeks ago who were saying, "Call him up, have him work with Chris Fetter, even though his ERA is nine. and uh, that seemed ridiculous to me at the time. Now here we are, just because yeah. of the sheer uh, the sheer roster crunch. Like this is a reality. He didn't get called up so he could work with Chris Fetter, but uh, the the one benefit is he's going to have a really good pitching coach watching him day in and day out, and maybe that will help make a little bit of a difference over time. But again, I think that, as we saw with Mize, with Scooble, some of these changes, these tweaks can take a month or more to really come to fruition. It's not just going to be a, a switch that's flipped, you know, Wednesday against the Cardinals. I guess I'm curious whether the organization is more so because obviously the the stuff that we just talked about they know they know better than us because they got all the information they've seen it all uh i guess i'm just curious if they're looking at him as someone who's likely to stay this year or or are we looking at spot starts two three whatever um 
any indication of that I, obviously they wouldn't come out and say it but like i i, I just kind of think if he if he makes two starts and he gets let's just say he gets shellacked in the second start and then they got and then they send him down because matthew boyd's healthy again or whatever uh how much is that going to do for his confidence? I mean, I, I just like, because Mize and Scooble got up and they stayed. Now, part of that maybe was because last year they, you know, there was no minor league, uh, you know, games to be had. But I don't know. I, I, I would like for him to earn it and not and, and be able to stay even through the growing pains. Whereas I don't know if it's really great for his development to kind of be jerked between Toledo and Detroit. That makes sense. Yeah, it's it's kind of a tough situation. I think the Tigers are just hoping that his talent is good enough to kind of get him get him through. And like we said, he can learn on the fly. This guy is a top twenty five prospect in baseball, so it's not like he's totally overmatched. The stuff's still there. If he figures out the secondary pitches, he'll probably be uh, just fine. He's probably going to continue to get roughed up a little bit, but can he manage it? You know, is it can you trust to put him out there every fifth day, or is it such a disaster? you have to send him down. That'll be the question. I think the Tigers really need him to be capable of staying up because Matthew Boyd's not going to be back until after the All-Star break. Spencer Turnbull's probably not going to be back until after the All-Star break. We've already talked about um, Mize and Scooble facing innings limits. There are some talks of limiting Mize to two or three innings after this uh, upcoming series against Houston. I don't know if uh, the injury factors will, will change that at all. The original plan was to bring Manning up kind of mid-season, and when you start dialing Mize and Scoople back, Manning is at full uh, workload. Maybe after you trade a starting pitcher. and Yeah, and now you're looking at trading perhaps a starting pitcher. I don't know if that'll happen or not, uh, especially with Turnbull battling injuries on the IL and Matt Boyd on the IL. But, you know, there's a world where the Tigers need pitching, and if you have to send Matt Manning down to AAA – you're not in a great spot there with your rotation. Jose Urania has been struggling again. So, you know, is he here to stay? That's ultimately up to his performance to dictate. But I think the Tigers are going to uh, probably give him several opportunities here to figure it out before before they, you know, even really consider sending him down simply because they need the arm right now. I guess if there's another benefit to him being with the big league club is – from the outside, it looks as though Mize and Scooble and Manning do have like a nice bond. Uh, they and, and actually, I I really like it because it's sort of like we see with uh, Riley Green and, and Torkelson and uh, in Double A now and Dingler. I don't want to leave him out. Uh, so, some guys kind of look at each other and they see. You know, it's game-recognized game. They see, like, the other person's really talented, too. And they kind of look at themselves as like, hey, we're the future. We are, like, we can get in at the ground floor and we can, you know, reach the promised land together and we can win championships together or whatever, you know. And 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 so from the outside, I, I have no idea how authentic it is. But from the outside, it looks really authentic uh, with the with those three pitchers. And we can throw uh, Fideo in, uh, in that as well. Um, it'd be nice for him to have that support system, especially as he gets uh, as he gets pitching advice and coaching, hard coaching from Chris Fetter full time for the first time. Yeah, no, I, I think it's legit. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal live together in spring training. Matt Manning shared the anecdote of uh, going over to Tarek Skubal's apartment the day um, of his of his last start in AAA and just kind of chatting, getting his mind right. They actually let their uh, their dogs meet each other, you know, so that, that kind of gives you a Aww. sense into what their life is like off field. Turns out Tarek Skubal has a couple of, like, little dogs. I think Yorkies, that is his fiance got him, so... I think we like big dogs on this podcast, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, well, as you said that, one of mine just scratched the door of my recording room. So I think they heard that we were talking about dogs. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it goes. But, uh, no, I, I mean, I remember going to Erie in 2019 and kind of asking, like, how do you guys ever think of what this could be like in a couple of years? And I think I, – I don't remember. I think it was really probably Fiedo who gave – the most honest response. He was like, yeah, you know, we want to be up there doing it together in the big leagues. 
but these guys are well aware of that. They know who they are. They know that the organization is kind of counting on them to be the future. I do think that was part of probably what forged that bond, knowing that in the, in the ideal world, you're going to be on the same team as this guy for several years to come. Yeah, there is a game recognized game thing. Like these are talented pitchers. They can learn from each other. Their personalities often complement each other, whereas Scooble and, uh, and, and um, Mize are a little more serious, a little more stoic. Manning, and if you count Fiedo in there, um, tend to be a little more laid back, like to joke around a little bit more. Um, Manning's kind of, or, you know, Mize is this ultimate preparer, kind of this pitching doctor, and then Manning's just this pure athlete who's become a pitcher. I think they can learn things from each other like that. So the compliments are kind of cool to see. Speaking of school, uh, I didn't know he had personality like that. So he he gets selected <laughs> for the uh, in-game interview on on the YouTube broadcast. Uh, Matt Baskurgeon, um was the uh, was the play-by-play, and then they had Rajay Davis, and I can't remember who the uh, other gentleman was who was who was on the broadcast. And I've seen Scoobles like interviews posted on on twitter and then i've watched shep on valley sports interview him during the game and that was not the same style that was not the same person that uh, as he was talking the matt Baskersian. uh i thought dang dude like <laughs> i didn't know you had this kind of personality or were at least open to speaking like this with a uh, microphone in your face well as someone who covers him what did you think when you saw that? Yeah, well, when I saw that Tarek Skubal was the player doing the mid-game interview, I was like, who made this decision? Like, are you sure? Like, couldn't have got Casey Mize to do it or, or uh, one of the more veteran guys? You know, and I, I always think of what A.J. Hinch said in spring training where he's like, every interaction with him is like a competition, you know, where he's sitting him down like, Tarek, what do you think of this year or whatever? And, uh, you know, AJ was like, I felt like I had to remind him that we were on the same team. That's just kind of the intense demeanor that, that Scooble has. Yeah. He's, he's, he's like that in interviews. It's hard to get him to crack a smile or open up, um, a whole lot. And I was shocked. It was like, he was living in the moment there to be on the national YouTube broadcast to, you know, Matt Veskurgeon says hello. And he's like, wow, you know, I'm used to hearing your voice on MLB the show. Uh, so he Big was, facts. yeah, I think he was, uh, he liked talking to the guy who's on MLB the show and he was, he gave a really good interview. He gave some good insights. It seems like he even had fun doing it. He was kind of smiling. It, it, he didn't he was like chewing, he was like chewing sunflower seeds as he's talking <laughs> or whatever. I was like, that's the sign of being relaxed. I mean, yeah, he, he so was, he didn't I, have a care in the world. Maybe it was the trip out to the West coast, like the California sun. I don't know, but it was, it was, it was funny. And it was kind of cool to see that side of Scoople too. Cause we definitely don't see it very often. Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, maybe they caught him on a good day with the excitement of one of his boys, you know, yeah. making the debut. That that certainly could have played a part. Uh, big fan, mediocre. What do you think of, like, this uh, this MLB YouTube venture uh, that they're doing, which is obviously part of their, you know, trying to grow digitally and all that stuff. Uh, I I, I, I didn't think it was the best presentation in the world. I don't know how much that was the ballpark and the remote stuff, uh, but it seemed like I heard two cracks of the bat whenever, uh, whenever someone hit. Like I think I think the first hit the Angels had, uh, my fiance goes, "Did he break his bat?" Because it just sounded so weird. I don't know if anyone else picked up on that. And then of course, wherever their their like uh, crowd mic was. Happened to be oh, right yeah. next. Happened to be right next to the most obnoxious person, and and that happens from time to time, and it is kind of annoying. Like, but I don't. So so I don't know how much of that was just circumstantial, but uh, I think it was. I think it was neat that the Tigers were a part of that because if you're a Detroit fan and you don't live in Detroit, you don't get a whole lot of national broadcast stuff, uh, especially Lions, Pistons. When they were good, you would get it. Uh, and Red Wings probably have a bigger, bigger national appeal than any of the teams. But the Tigers, you know, it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened very much the past couple of years. So for me, it was kind of neat that they were chosen. Uh, but I just wasn't. It didn't mesh overall with me too much. Uh, Rajay seemed a little nervous 
on the broadcast because uh, I think he's got a good enough personality to be good on TV. But maybe it's the setting again, being the remote stuff. Obviously, Vaskersian's the goat; like he's awesome. Uh, but overall, I I I, I came away kind of feeling kind of meh. But it could have been one of those things where you just change like two things. They're actually in the ballpark, and you move that microphone, and I think is a little bit better. They had the the pitch like the pitch locator like different colors and stuff and so like yeah like like i said overall meh but you just changed two things i think it would turn out real well so what did you think overall of that broadcast yeah uh the thing that lingers with me was rajai davis inter interviewing mike trout and it was just cringeworthy television for about five minutes (laughs) didn't he forget he forgot what he was gonna say right he was Uh, like yeah yeah, he's like oh i i forgot what i was gonna say i was like he was trying to ask if like Shohei Otani speaks English and it came off like real weird. And I think he was trying to not say anything offensive. And it was just like, why are we even like, it was just, it was just cringeworthy. Trout's not a very good interview in the first place. Uh, so yeah, that was now, slow down, Rob Manfred. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth. Um, you know, so there was that, yeah, the commentary, you know, Raja, he said some interesting things like him, him breaking down Akil Badu, just, um, totally missing the cutoff man was like some really good analysis from a former player, but his commentary overall wasn't, wasn't quite there. And then, you know, I, they had this chat thing on the YouTube, you know, if you go to youtube.com, the Tigers asked me to run the Detroit Tigers account which was weird because I was like I don't work for the Detroit Tigers also I'm doing extra work and not getting paid for it you know (laughs) Uh, so I did think that was weird because they promoted it on the screen by saying like you know the Tigers the comment section and like they made it seem like it was an official team thing but then I saw like you saying on Twitter that you were doing it I was like that I don't know could should you at very least like you being like YouTube shouldn't you like specify that it's like talk with the you know tigers beat writer for the athletic cody stavenhager or something as opposed to making it seem like you're talking to the team i don't know it seemed like yeah it was weird and then i didn't really know how to act from that account so i'm like i'm not gonna be at tigers because i'm not a tigers employee i'm not gonna be like oh you know scope does it again or whatever like (laughs) exclamation point exclamation point so I just kind of tried to throw some like stats and facts out there every now and then for the most part, but that was kind of an odd setup. And then I was like, does anyone actually care about this chat? And you had like some other random, uh, I think MLB was calling them like influencers or something on there. Uh, I was like, is this really adding anything for anybody? Um, I kind of doubt it to be honest. So there was that, the idea of just a national broadcast is cool. I think it helped that you're playing the angels that you're playing Otani you know, there was a lot of intrigue there, but overall, like, yeah, the broadcast itself could have used some work. The entire presentation just felt a little weird, a little off. It wasn't exactly like the, uh, like an ESPN Sunday night baseball broadcast by any means. Well, and, and as I criticize it, I also want to say this, I applaud trying to do something, trying to kind of get into that digital sphere trying to grow the game and and in, in in new ways because uh youtube is everything man like you talk to any digital creator they tell you that like youtube is how how they live and that's something maybe it's because i'm not like a gamer or whatever so i'm not like really into that world if that makes sense uh, I'm also more of an audio guy. I'm not like uh, I don't want to watch an hour video. I'd rather listen to an hour podcast. But I, I I might just be the weird one, you know. But but YouTube's where it's at. So it's nice that they did it, and it wasn't blacked out in Detroit. That's helpful. Yeah, anything that's not blacked out is a huge win for baseball. The notion of the blackout in sports television viewing is as antiquated as not having numbers on the back of the jersey. Like, it's basically like, hey, we need people to go to the game so we can't show it on TV locally. That's it. That's the entire logic. It, the, the football does it too. Like, if if the Detroit Lions don't sell a certain amount of tickets, they're not going to play the game uh, in the Detroit area. Like, that's it's essentially an allowed, uh, like, government restriction. Like, they had to get permission back in the day, and then no one's really challenged it. The whole blackout thing's... Like I said, very, very, very unnecessary in today's day and age. And also, like, 
you're not losing television revenues where it's at, right? So like, it's not like no one when they made this rule, they didn't think television was going to be a revenue source. They just thought it was something else. And so, like I said, very antiquated. So anything that's not not blacked out, I'm a big I'm a big fan of. So now it, it should be noted as we talked about this Angels series in pretty pretty good detail. Uh, the Tigers did start the week off with a sweep of the Royals. So, uh, they, like I said, they got off to a really good start, taking down a division opponent. And they started this road trip in style. I don't know whose idea it was, but they decided to, ro- uh, to wear retro NBA jerseys. And I got, I'm not going to lie, dude. They... I was highly impressed. You and I have been to many a nighttime establishment and many a uh, many a event of outdoor varieties of musics and various poisons, where jerseys are part of the uh, it's part of the fashion statement of going out. And we've seen a lot of bad ones. We've seen a lot of bad ones. These were all. Pretty freaking good, dude. So you got Eric Haas, probably my personal favorite just because it's one of my favorite players of all time. Eric Haas had a uh, Dennis Rodman Pistons jersey. Cabrera was wearing a uh, VC Raptors with the uh, with the Jurassic Park logo. We had a Magic Johnson uh, Team USA uh, jersey from Casey Mize from the Dream Team. That was pretty cool. Uh, you have a favorite? I, I went out to list them all, but do you have a favorite? That's pretty interesting. Sources inform me that there was a talk, should everyone just wear Pistons jerseys? And I'm glad they didn't go down that route. It was cool to like, guys choose their own jersey, their favorite player. You know, some guys uh, uh, kind of repped where they were from. You had Jake Rogers and, and Robbie Grossman going with some old school Rockets jerseys. That was kind of cool. Um, and then I guess like if guys couldn't really pick or whatever, they went with the team USA Jersey, which I think is interesting. It's like, I can see why Mize might not have a favorite NBA team. He's from like Alabama, you know, uh, maybe, I think Matt Boyd was seen wearing a team USA Jersey. I really feel like Boyd should have rocked a Seattle Sonics Jersey. I don't know why he, uh, why he, Sean Kemp, Sean Kemp. Yeah, totally. Um, and then the coaching staff went, went, um, heavy on Pistons. They actually got some jerseys provided to them by the Pistons. Uh, with their numbers on it, AJ Hinch rocked the the jersey pretty well. Um, I really want Miggy's commentary on the Vince Carter jersey because I'm like, does Miguel Cabrera watch the NBA? Does he know who Vince Carter is? He might. I don't know. <laughs> I could also see him just being like, I really like the dinosaur. You know, I just I, I hope to ask Miguel Cabrera about that someday. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, like I like Jurassic Park. I just want to know what his decision making process was because I feel like it'd be entertaining. Uh, the guy I'm going to shout out is Chris Fetter, you know, because he's like 6'8", and he was going full pet Pistons warm-up sweats and just looked to me like he could be like the last guy off an NBA bench who's like uncoordinated, but, you know, he can go in and get you a couple fouls. And some J's. Don't forget the J's. And, and he was rocking some nice J's. So even though it wasn't the jersey, he was just the guy who actually looked the most like an NBA player to me, and uh, and I thought it was kind of cool. As we talked about, supposedly he blocked Greg Oden back in his high school basketball days. So I, I can't tell. I'm looking at the pictures right now. I can't tell uh, what Daz Cameron. Do you know what Daz Cameron wore? It was. It's um, a new. It, it's no, a no. New Jersey. Uh, new Jersey Nets. Uh, and I because he's blocked in the picture, and, I, and it's a little bit out of focus to where I can't tell who he's wearing. But I think it's possible he's wearing an Alonzo Morning New Jersey Nets, okay. which would be uh, which would be funny. I don't know if that's the case. I doubt it because he's right behind uh, he's right behind Willie Castro, who's wearing a Alonzo Morning Heat jersey. So there were two Alonzo Mornings. I would call that upset of the year. That two Alonzo Morning <laughs> jerseys were uh, were spotted, and uh, looks like the Kembe Mutombo for Greg Soto. That's that's a nice one. Um, and I think just you know, with the Rockets jerseys, it's Clyde uh, Clyde Drexler. I think Rogers. I think it's a Yao Ming, but I I can't. It, the number's kind of blocked and the labels blocked, so I'm not 100 percent sure there. But I liked it. I thought it was a nice little fun thing the team did. And even though I'm a Pistons fan, and and just full disclosure, Cody, if 
If the Pistons win the lottery next week, we're dedicating a good 10, 15 minutes to a Kate Cunningham <laughs> scouting report. So just, just sure, full disclosure sure. there. Um, I, I'm glad they went with, because Jersey culture isn't about just wearing your favorite team. Like Jersey culture is about having, uh, having the, the coolest Jersey. So like it would have been, it wouldn't have been as interesting to just have Pistons jerseys. Yeah, absolutely. And no, we've seen like these theme trips that Joe Madden kind of made him famous. I think dating back to his Tampa Ray, Tampa, yeah, Tampa Ray's days, the 16 Cubs would do Jersey days. They do like ridiculous costumes and stuff like that. It's uh, probably a little too corny to be like, oh, this means they have remarkable team chemistry. Uh, but, you know, I think it's cool to let the guys have some fun to do things like this. We've seen a lot of teams and a lot of sports do do little trips like this, um, mostly because it's fun. And, and yeah, it can't, certainly can't hurt the camaraderie unless maybe guys end up fighting over the same jersey. Maybe it could cause a huge, huge locker room rift over who gets to wear the Vince Carter jersey. I don't know. Well, it. It look a big on a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> also, shout out Akil Badu for the uh, orange Warriors jersey, uh, Steph oh, Curry, I like that. Yeah, and I like that. Uh, you know Nico and uh, uh, Jimenez going with the Lakers jerseys. Yeah, it's not that cool in my opinion. I, I did like Jonathan Scope's Brooklyn jersey though; that was unique. So, shout out to the guys. I I thought, like I said, I thought it was really cool. Uh, whoever's idea was and. Uh, and, you know, something different, something different to, you know, go into a good road trip. And they ended up having a nice start to the week, followed by uh, a little bit of a bumpier time in Anaheim. If that's OK. So. All right. And because it is Father's Day weekend, uh, we have some special guests on today's podcast. We're going to hear from Mike Steckley, Kieran's dad. And with me is my dad. We got Steve Stavenhagen in the house. I'm in his house right now. So I guess I guess that's fitting. Uh, but we figured we'd just have our dads on and, and talk a little baseball, maybe some of their favorite baseball memories. Um, so I don't know. I think, you know, when I think of my dad, I think of our computer room in which he's got a bunch of Willie Mays memorabilia, you know, over the computer. Um, he's got some good stories. So let's let's start there. Uh, why was Willie Mays your favorite player growing up? It boils down to the guy across the street from me. When I was growing up, he was about five years older than me, and whatever he liked, I loved. So that's where it all came from. Now, you got Willie Mays' autograph in Amarillo, Texas, of all places. How, how did that go down? It was 1968 at the uh, AAA, AA Stadium of Amarillo, in Amarillo, Texas, for the Amarillo Giants. Willie was coming to town. The whole San Francisco Giants were as an ex- exhibition game. So that's why he was there. First and only time that I remember or know of. What was it like approaching him to get his autograph? Well, actually, he approached a crowd of kids about my age. Most of them a little bit younger and much bigger. <laughs> uh, I recognized him coming out of the dugout. He came right to the to the fence where all the kids were at and they were screaming yelling i was one of them doing the screaming and the yelling and it was exciting yeah that's great and then you saw willie mays hit a homer at the astrodome right that must have been a thrill to go to a game and oh, your favorite was, player homers in that game that was first year of the astrodome wow that was it was amazing it was the fastest line drop home run I've ever seen. It was straight line drop to left field. All right. That's awesome. And, and so, yeah, I think uh, my dad's passion for baseball kind of continued there. Into the 90s, he became a big uh, TBS Braves fan. So oh, that's yeah. that's why I was a Braves fan growing up. And those were those were some great teams to grow up with, for sure. How many pets have we had named after various Braves players? <laughs> Fish. <laughs> Well, this is this is a good one for Tigers, Tigers country. Tell them about uh, the cat that, that we had when I was growing up. Oh, uh, he's forgotten the cat's name that we had for 18 years. What was that cat's name? <laughs> <laughs> Avery, named Avery, after Steve yo, Avery. Steve Avery, the whole time. Yes, that's right. That's the only pet we've ever named after a baseball player. Only big pet. Uh, we had, we had Chipper. We had the dog oh, who yeah. got sent back after a couple of months because he uh, he was unfortunately <laughs> just 
not the best dog. You know, you know, I, this is rough. He uh, got under my dad's truck and started chewing the wires under his truck. So that was the on his back. On his back. That was unfortunately the last straw for Chipper. <laughs> he wasn't great with children either. I wasn't very big. My brother was just a baby. So um, sad story about Chipper. But anyway, my dad, you know, as, as me and my brother start growing up, he became a very involved baseball dad, as many dads do. But interestingly, he's a lefty. For some reason, he did not teach me how to throw a left-handed. Big mistake. That's why I'm doing a podcast now. But <laughs> he was known as a terrific batting practice um, pitcher. Like, like, why did you enjoy doing that so much? He would, he would throw to the, you know, the whole team in my practices and stuff like that. Well, when you grow up with baseball, you're forced to leave baseball early. You look for anything you can to get your ego to remain. <laughs> so striking out children striking is the way to go. Uh, no, but he was so renowned that when I was playing for, for like another team one year, I don't know how to explain this concisely, but, you know, the, the group of coaches that I had played with in the past, they were like struggling against left-handers. And so they called up my dad to come throw batting practice to them one day when I was playing on a different team. Uh, that's how <laughs> famous Steve Stadenhagen's left-handed BP was. So, <laughs> What a memory. <laughs> Well, okay, so let me ask this, Mr. Stephen Hagen. What's your favorite memory of Cody playing baseball? Ooh. Ooh. I'll never forget the championship game in Arkansas of the World Series, 14-year-olds. That, that was the last game he was able to play. That was awesome. They, went, they won 25 games in a row to the World Series championship. We were 65 and five that summer. Ooh. It was awesome. It was fun. It was a fun team. Miss those guys. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think that's uh, about all we've got. But again, happy Father's Day. Is there anything else you want to throw in there? I'm good. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs> all right so after speaking with mr staven hagen we now have my father papa steckley captain michael j steckley a detroit native thanks for joining us dad so why don't you just tell me how you became what made you fall in love with the detroit tigers well it was a different era when i was a boy i'm 70 years old now and back then in the 50s and the 60s, baseball was everything. Football wasn't on TV. In fact, virtually nothing was on TV. You might see one game a week if you're lucky. What we all tuned into was Ernie Harwell. And anytime the Tigers were playing, you could hear Ernie Harwell's voice all over the neighborhood and out of the radios of cars. And like I said, baseball is everything. We played around a little bit of hockey in the wintertime on frozen ponds but the Red Wings weren't on TV. If you were lucky, you might see a, a game on what was called ultra-high-frequency channels, because there were only three TV stations back then. And so they just didn't put many sports on. And football was kind of a, an exotic thing. We probably played around a little bit with it in the fall, but not seriously. And going to a Lions game, because I went to Lions games with my father occasionally, he had season tickets, uh, it was a dress-up thing. It was like years ago, people would dress up to fly in an airplane. When you went to a Lions game, it was like overcoats, ties, uh, nicely dressed. At Brick uh, Stadium, by the way. Yeah, yeah, and then later on at Tiger Stadium. I saw my last Lions game at the old uh, Silver Dome, which is now just a big empty field in Detroit. But uh, baseball was everything, and we would start, as soon as the weather got nice, we would get start Little League. And the ritual in my neighborhood was everyone would take their glove over and have Mr. Al Kalin sign it. In fact, my son Karen, Karen has a glove that was signed by Al Kalin. If he could ever find a way to bring this, the ink out in some kind of uh, uh, thing with ultra, uh, you know, ultra light or something, it would probably still be there. But that was our ritual with uh, Mr. Kalin. And uh, back then, too, baseball is totally different. The highest-paid pay players, pl uh, highest paid players 
were making less than six figures. It was a big deal when K-Line got a $100,000 contract in the late 60s. But uh, he lived in our neighborhood. He lived around the corner from me. I lived on a horseshoe-shaped street, and he was on one side of the horseshoe, and I was on the other side. And uh, I uh, ended up being his paper boy for a number of years for the Detroit News, and I still have fond memories of uh, collecting a, about a buck thirty-five from Mr. Kaline. He was always Mr. Kaline to us kids. My mother was good friends with his wife, Louise, because back then a lot of women didn't work back in the late 50s, early 60s, so a lot of women were at home. And so they, they were good friends. And every year at the Franklin Little League, he would throw out the first pitch to kick off the, uh, kick off the season. We had a couple other Detroit sports uh, celebrities that lived in Franklin. It was, we had uh, Roger Brown from the Lions and Bob Lanier from the Pistons lived there. And Hank Gary evidently lived there for a while because he would uh, come out to the opening day of the Little League also. But it was still, it was all baseball, baseball, baseball. Now for people that live in the Detroit area, I can, they would know exactly where I grew up. I grew up at, within sight of 14 Mile and Telegraph. As any Detroit native can uh, tell you exactly where you are based on the mile roads coming out of the city. It was a real nice place to grow up. And uh, a lot of uh, fond memories, and I've always stuck with my Detroit teams throughout the years. So I, I try to think about it from someone my generation. I couldn't fathom living down the street from Pudge Rodriguez since you know I grew up here in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, much less trying to collect money from the guy uh it's just a crazy concept now but back then it seemed relatively normal because he was just your neighbor right that's right just a neighbor i can still picture him uh, you know as a young man with a crew cut and just real nice humble person just like any other person in the neighborhood and it was uh, just a different era totally so you've told me a story about something with one of his sons in, in a garage. What, what's, what's the deal with oh, that? Oh yeah, his uh, son Mike and Mark. Uh, my mother always claimed that uh, Louise liked Michael, so she named one of her boys Michael. But he, they were playing with a garage door. I met mean, a garage door open. The game was to hit the button and try to race out of the garage before the door closed. And one of them got caught in it at the time. I don't remember the details much beyond that, but it wasn't serious, but they just uh, it was an incident boys being boys type deal right now my mother was the only paid elected official in the village of franklin she was a village clerk and i remember the uh, night they won the world series in 68 a, uh, she organized a big group of cars just going around and around our neighborhood honking and carrying on like crazy because no one really could go to the game just didn't really go to the games then their tickets were all sold out for the for the world series but going to the game at tiger stadium was great because it was inexpensive it was a buck a seat up in the bleachers. Uh, uh, drinks and stuff were inexpensive. When I was at Michigan State, we used to rent a bus every fall and all go down to the night game and sit in the bleachers and have a ball. You just can't have to do that anymore. It's too expensive to go to games. What would you say is your best Tiger Stadium slash Briggs Stadium memory? And if it matters, you include Lions games in there. Yeah. Well, when the uh, Lions beat the Packers around 62 or 63 and the Packers were undefeated, that was, that was a big deal. I was there for some tragedy, too. I was there when Chuck Hughes died on the field. Had a heart attack. I think he had a heart attack. Uh, Tigers games, whenever we went, we always tried to sit up in right field. And I've got some memorabilia from LK line day and stuff like that. And uh, he was just an incredible ball player. What was he like as a man? Humble, nice, unassuming. You would never know he was a superstar. Just a, a wonderful human being. A wonderful family man. So when I started playing t-ball, I was using a wood bat. Not only was I using a wood bat, I was using a Cecil Fielder signature model wood bat fit for t-ball. Where do you have any recollection of how you found a Cecil Fielder wood bat that was made for a four-year-old? No, I really don't. But uh, 
I like the idea of wood bats, and you carried a wood bat as far as you could all through Pony League in, in high school. It's just something better about the crack of a ball on a wood bat than a ping on an aluminum bat. But once again, things have changed. Uh, I've got a, a first baseman's glove from the 20s that my father used that would, you wouldn't even believe you could use that in baseball. It had no pocket, a lot of stuffing. It was a two-handed game for sure back then. And, it, and our family heritage with the Tigers goes back even farther than you, right? Because uh, didn't uh, my great-grandfather, didn't he do the scoreboard yeah. at Old Navin Field? Yep, he did. Yeah, back he when to, Cobb was playing? Yeah, they used to change the, uh, change the numbers and stuff, and you could watch the game looking through the, uh, the, the holes where the, you know, the numbers weren't at the time. Yeah, there's a lot of tradition back there, and uh, Detroit's a great sports town. They've really stuck with their teams over the years. But like I said before, when I grew up, it was baseball, baseball, baseball. How great was Al Kaline's arm to see in person? Incredible. I mean, he could throw from right field to home plate, straight line shot like a laser. It's just unbelievable. So not only were you in Detroit for the 68 World Series, we'll, we'll, we'll start there. You gave a little bit with the neighborhood, with the honkings and the cars and all that stuff, but what was the mood of the city when the Tigers won their first World Series since 45? Well, it basically uh, put Detroit back on its feet because that was a year after the really bad riots in 67. Uh, and uh, there was a really tough time to grow up in the uh, 60s for a lot of reasons, but Detroit had really bad riots and they almost made it in 67. But when in 68, they made it, it was like a healing thing. Uh, in fact, um, what's that song uh, that Marvin Gaye sings, What's Going On? There's some lions singing in the background of that song. And then 1984, coincidentally, you were in Southern California when the yeah. Tigers were facing the San Diego Padres in the World Series. Uh, were you proudly sporting your Detroit cap then? Oh yeah, in fact, I got in a little trouble. We, I was a company commander at uh, 1st Tank Battalion at the time. We were having a, uh, a meeting of the colonel and all the, uh, the uh, company commanders and the various staff, and uh, I whipped off my Marine Corps cover and put a Detroit Tigers cover on, and he was a Padre fan, so that didn't go over too good. You could have heard a pin drop in the room. So, Expand on Detroit sports fans. They ha almost by nature have to be really loyal. The Lions haven't won a championship since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. Yep. And the Red Wings went 42 years without winning a championship. The Tigers have had some success, however. They haven't won a World Series since 84. And the Pistons have, you know, they're on a little bit of a drought right now. What is it about Detroit and its fans and its sport teams that makes them so loyal, in your opinion? It's hard to say, because it, it, it crosses all uh, uh, boundaries as far as race and sex and stuff, because they're f fanatical fans uh, of all types there. Uh, my mother was a huge fan. Uh, it just, uh, people are loyal. It's a Midwestern thing, maybe, but people are just real loyal and they stick with their hometown teams. I mean, I've been stationed all around and I've always stuck with my Detroit teams, even when I was in Los Angeles. When we were uh, right, our parking lot was right in the parking lot of Dodger Stadium. You could hear the crack of the ball on the bat from my office, but still died in a wool uh, a Tigers fan. And I, I think it's too, also the, just the character of the city. It uh, has got a lot of spirit. Even when it's down, it's still, people are loyal, they're proud to be from Detroit. I, mean, I was born in Detroit, I was raised in the suburbs, but I always consider myself a Detroit person. And you passed it on to me. Any regrets about that? Not at all. You going to get into the story about how your mother almost divorced me over the Red Wings? Yeah, so more or less, the Red Wings had won a cup in 42 years. In 1997, it was your birthday. The Red Wings were up 3-0, and... They had a chance to clinch, clinch the first Stanley Cup in 42 years. And 
my mother wanted to go out. I was an infant. My second youngest brother was even younger, and my third youngest brother had not been born yet. There aren't very many opportunities to go out. That's what my mom says. However, you decided that you wanted to just watch the Red Wings game. That sounds crazy, maybe, to people who don't realize the magnitude of what that meant to see the Red Wings win another world, uh, another Stanley Cup. Oh, absolutely, because it had been so long and they'd uh, been down for so many years. Uh, it was uh, something I didn't want to miss, but uh, your mother saw it slightly differently. At, uh, and at, uh, when you got me that uh, video from Darren McCarthy on my birthday, that was, uh, that was terrific. Yeah, so for his most recent birthday, his 70th birthday, I got him a cameo from Darren McCarthy where he uh, essentially said, thank you for your loyalty and thank God you didn't actually get divorced over the game. And he also hyped up Steve Eisenman now heading the Red Wings as the GM. So... Uh, so tell me your perspective of Mother's Day. I've shared this with the Turning the Corner listeners. Tell me your perspective of losing my youngest brother, Liam, on Mother's Day at the ballpark in Arlington. Well, it's, uh, you know, what mother wouldn't want to go on Mother's Day wouldn't want to go to a baseball game with her three sons. I mean, what mother wouldn't want to do that? Certainly any mother from Detroit would, and I'm not sure about New York, but anyway. It was, uh, it was traumatic. It was, it was it was surprising. I mean, one minute he was there, the next second he was gone. Fortunately, they had really good uh, security there and they locked the stadium down, wouldn't let anybody out with a child. They couldn't prove that it was theirs. But I've never been allowed to forget that. By the way, there's a guy that was on the Tigers team at the time who's now their bench coach. Oh, that's terrific. So things come full circle. Yep, yep. And then you saw, we have some Tiger memories. We saw, um, who was it? We went to a game, we saw someone's first home run. Well, we saw Ian Kinsler's first career home run. At the time, he was with the Rangers. Yeah. That was uh, a birthday uh, mm -hmm. for me. The Tigers were in town on my birthday. And that was 2006. That was actually the year the Tigers eventually went to the World mm -hmm. Series. And uh, we saw Chris Shelton, because he was on a tear that whole April. He hit like 17 home runs or whatever in that month, and we saw him hit a home run. That was yeah. R.A. Dickey, remember the yeah, knuckleballer? Yeah, yeah. The knuckleball that didn't knuckle. Right. You got some good autographs that game, didn't you? Or was it an earlier game when you got? Over the years, I've gotten a decent amount. You know, if we go back to that era of Tigers, Bobby Higginson, Jeff Weaver, uh, Fernando Rodney, Mike Maroth, who I always appreciated Mike Maroth for sticking it out when the team wasn't very good and they were mm -hmm. losing. They were about to set a record for losses and he was about to set a record for individual losses, but he went out there and he competed nonetheless. Those were really lean years for the Tigers and they've been lean years for the Tigers now uh, the past couple of years, but they're showing some promise now. Yeah, they're doing much better than I think anybody expected. Because the Detroit teams, another thing about the Detroit teams in Detroit, they really support the city. And you look at the way the Renaissance is in Detroit, and a lot of that's due to the owners of the uh, sports teams, the Ford family and the... Uh, who, now, the Red Wings are still owned by... Yeah, uh, both Illich. Yeah, but, okay. That, uh, that's really, they've, that, they've moved the teams back into Detroit. And uh, I think that's a very positive thing. The city supports them. And so you recently you visited Detroit for the first time in many years, downtown Detroit. What did you think of the development of downtown? Oh, I was very impressed. I it was interesting. I felt safe walking around there. There's a lot of historical buildings in Detroit and statues, a lot of history there, especially automotive history. And it's a fine town. When I was a child, my uh, mother used to take me shopping downtown Detroit to Hudson's which uh, I, I don't know if they still do a, a parade on Thanksgiving, but it was a big department store back then. You'd take a streetcar down there, you'd walk around. I, I felt perfectly fine down there. It looked beautiful. Is there anything else you felt like you wanted to say? No, I think that's, uh, that's about it. I'm real proud that you have uh, accomplished all you've done and have stuck with it and become a great Detroit uh, fan yourself. It's a blessing and a curse. So. Oh, and one last thing. I'd like to thank Cody. I happen to be wearing uh, the hat from the Detroit Stars he got me a couple of years ago. I wear it all the time. 
Yes, Cody. Uh, Cody's gifts to you have always been on point, and so uh, and so he's a valued member of this podcast. He's a valued member of the extended family here at the Steckley. So that was Captain Michael J. Steckley rehashing some of the great times in the city of Detroit. This has been Turning the Corner Podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. A little nostalgia, a little father son dynamics with cody and his dad and then my father and myself be sure to follow us on twitter at turn corner pod cody is at cody stavenhagen i am at kieran underscore steckley please subscribe rate and review we appreciate all the positive feedback we have a lot of fun doing this and so please stay tuned for next week when we go deep into a second start with matt manning and rehash all the transactions and all the happenings of the Detroit Tigers. So for Captain Michael J. Steckley, for Mr. Stavenhagen, for Cody Stavenhagen, I am Kieran Steckley. Thank you for listening.